Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at Utah State. <laughs> I do that every time, don't I? I'm at the Utah State Hospital, but we're at USH Med Student. I've got three students here with me today to talk about a topic that uh, I think you'll find very interesting. Let's do some introductions, saving the best for last. I'm Kent Roundy, I'm uh, the psychiatrist here. Hey, I'm Ray, I'm a third year medical student. I'm Jamin, I'm a fourth year medical student. And I'm Nuria, and I'm also a third year medical student. All right, now when I say save the best for last, we got to know more about you, Nuria. I think I made both Jamin and Ray go through the who are you kind of question. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, like I said, I'm a third year medical student. I was first generation American. My parents are Pakistani immigrants who came over from Karachi in the 90s before I was born. Um, I was born in Seattle, grew up in Virginia, then moved to Maryland, and now I live here in Utah, so I've lived all over. Utah and Maryland are a lot alike. Yeah, sometimes, <laughs> and sometimes not. I, uh, one of my favorite memories was driving through uh, Maryland in the evening with a rainstorm just as it became nighttime, um, and it was so beautiful there. The, the green, just, it's such a pretty place. It's you're very nice. It's it is green um, and humid. <laughs> you're nodding yes. Yeah, I, I keep that forgetting that there's a mic and I have to speak. I'm sorry. And you've also been to Washington, which is absolutely gorgeous, right yes. there on that uh, what is it, the San Juan de Fuca plate? Is that how you say that? I don't know. Uh, so there's <laughs> what three tectonic plates that are coming together there. You've got all those gorgeous mountains that come just right up out of the out of the ground. And isn't this a psych? Talk. I'll start over. <laughs> what are we doing? No, 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 keep going. That's good. All right. So it's beautiful there. You've been to beautiful places, and now you're in Utah. And hopefully you find it as beautiful here. It's definitely been an, a scenery experience. All right. So two minutes in after introductions, let's go ahead and introduce the topic. Nuria, tell us about the topic and how you decided to, to choose this topic. So the topic today is gender dysphoria. And I settled on this topic based on a conversation I had with a transgender physician at OMED, which is a conference for osteopathic physicians. Uh, last year in October, I went to this conference. This physician gave a really incredible talk about her experience as a physician and as a trans person, and it really inspired me. She gave me a book about the subject afterwards, and I've just been studying it ever since. We talked about this a little bit before. Your passion is to make sure that uh, physicians, medical students, don't run away from difficult topics. Yes. I yeah. believe this is a topic that a lot of people are afraid to discuss and maybe afraid to learn more about, but I believe we can all seek out that knowledge, learn more, and be able to provide better care to all of our patients. I'm the first to admit that I was uh, a little bit nervous about jumping into this topic. And one of the things I really appreciated was the articles that you picked for me to read, the way we were able to talk about the information, and I, I think we have kind of a good direction ahead of us. That's that's my feeling. I think so too. So let's start off with uh, let's let's get the pearls out first, okay? So in terms of board yield, there are a couple of important things to know about this. Let's start off with. Uh, Ray, Jamin, things that you have studied that you've seen along the way that we need to know or that, that people that are prepping for the boards need to know in terms of gender dysphoria? Generally, I think the questions on the board prep are asking treatment, treatment ideas. And generally, they'll present like maybe an adult, a young kid that are having difficulties with their you know, genetic gender. And then the 
Answer choices will give you differences of SSRIs, uh, surgery, or even therapy. And I think the idea is to initially offer them therapy and just kind of talk about what's distressing them. Um, and from what I've seen, it is barely touched. Um, I went back and looked at my favorite resources. Uh, the school does a survey every year of what students found to be the most helpful. Uh, and so I went back to those materials and I think I only found three or four paragraphs on the subject and most of the space on the page was filled up by the DSM-5 criteria which I think goes back to why you're so passionate about this Nuria is we don't get a lot of training on this and what to look for and then how to how to best help the patient. Nuria any additions to what uh, has been set up to this point? The only thing I have seen in my test prep that might trip you up is that you will sometimes have descriptions of patients whose behavior is gender variant. I'm using quotes right now. Like you'll have a mother whose adolescent son has started wearing makeup and they'll ask you what the initial treatment is. And the initial treatment is to talk to the mother and reassure her that adolescence experiment um, if the patient hasn't expressed any distress about them wearing eyeliner because the idea, what they're trying to get at at these questions is that just because a patient's behavior is, does not conform to maybe a, a social construct of gender, it doesn't mean that they need to be treated. Gender dysphoria is defined as the distress the patient experiences because of an incongruency, an incongruity between the gender that they feel they are and the way their body actually looks. And if the patient doesn't have that distress, you don't really need to proceed with treatment um, to change anything. Yeah, I think that actually leads into a section out of the DSM-5 that I looked at in preparation for this, and that is the differential diagnosis. And, and I think in some ways you're speaking to that. Nonconformity is one of the things in the differential, right? If this young man is wearing eyeliner just because he doesn't want to follow what he sees as an expected social pathway, that would be more about non-confirmation rather than what you talked about, which is the incongruence between the experienced and the expressed assigned gender, right? And I use the word assigned gender, I think the way that it's used in the literature. You're assigned at birth by the fact of being born a gender in most cases, and sometimes there's surgical assignment when there's ambiguous genitalia, right? Um, and then the other thing that so that we're talking about the same kinds of um, words and definitions, natal, uh, uh, natal state, uh, natal um, gender is sometimes used, right, as a way to describe the gender at birth as opposed to what somebody is at the time of talking about them. Right? Yes, I've seen that um, language used in a lot of the literature I read. When I was uh, taking the tests along these lines and, and studying and preparing for study, uh, preparing study material, the the other things that seem to fit in the differential that might be confounding options on a test question were things like transvestic fetishism. And again, that's not as much about the expressed gender as it is about the desire to wear clothing of the opposite gender, right? And so important to know. Body dysmorphic disorder was also in that, uh, in that uh, um, list of potential confounding answers, I suppose. And then the last one is schizophrenia, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, schizophrenia and, and um, 
the challenges associated with schizophrenia and gender, um, gender affirming surgery. Um, on that note, let's go ahead and, and start with kind of a review of some of the articles. You sent me through four. Was there one that was your favorite? Uh, my favorite article would be the article about, uh, what was it called? It was about basically neuroanatom neuroanatomical findings they had done in research to see if there are like measurable differences in the brains of trans people and people who are cisgendered. Um, it was a pretty interesting article that talked a lot about um, differences in, how to explain this, and kind of the way you experience your, you know, in our brains we have networks like in the parietal lobe that help you experience your body. And some of those parts are different in people who are trans, which might explain why they feel this distress about their body. Because their brain is really wired in a way where they're getting a signal that their body is wrong. So I have a couple of comments about this, but I want to back up just, just for a moment. Uh, the language that would show up on the shelf exam, we want to be very careful with or the, 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 the test preparation. You're using the word trans, but you told me earlier that a different uh, uh, a different name might show up in the test prep and the name and the, the labels, and I hate the, the labels, the way we would refer to people who are seeking gender assignment, gender affirming surgery might even be different now. So, so explore those different names with us. Sure, so I have noticed in test prep that the word transsexual is um, used to refer to people who are seeking or who have had gender affirming surgery. It has been my experience and my research that right now in the trans community in 2020, the word transsexual is kind of out of use and the word transgender is preferred uh, in part because it's a more inclusive word that includes people in the umbrella who do not want to have surgery. And also because in some cases, surgery has been used as a requirement for trans people to get, transgendered people to get legal documentation. So that word transsexual might show up on your boards, definitely showed up in my test prep, but probably you won't be using it in real life and you probably shouldn't, might want to avoid using it um, in day-to-day -day discussion because it's not as useful. Um, so you bring up something that's very interesting to me. So we talked about uh, gender dysphoria being an incongruence. I'm gonna repeat it again. This is like the third or fourth time. We'll bring it up again because that's probably one of the highlights of the, of the podcast incongruence between the experienced and expressed uh, expressed gender, right? And then the other criteria for the, uh, for the diagnosis in the DSM-5, there's like four or five of them. And what it seems like they kind of boil down to, if I'm thinking about a, a quick thumbnail, is um, the, the people that are struggling with um, gender dysphoria, they, they want to feel, be, look, and participate in the social roles that the opposite gender has, right? And there's a whole bunch of criteria that speak to how that would play out operationally. Um, but there are a couple of specifiers to the condition as well. One is if it's a disorder of sexual development. In a sense, this article speaks to that because congenital adrenal hyperplasia, androgen insensitivity, these are some of the correlates, the biological correlates of of gender dysphoria that, that you're um, alluding to with the article. There were a lot more that were uh, neurologically complex, neuroanatomically complex. I am not a neuroanatomist. 
at heart. I wish I was. Um, we may have that word, you know, uh, pronounced in in the notes on this one. You're going to say something, Nuria. Uh, was I? No, maybe not. And then the other thing worth noting is, and, and this is part of what you're talking about with legal, I think, I'm not sure about legal documentation, but I think legal protection, right? So equal protection under the law, um, civil rights kinds of, of implications. There is a, a specifier also for um, post-transition, and post-transition doesn't mean that you've had gender-affirming surgery. It could also mean that you're actually living with the, the hormones at that time, right? So, so it doesn't, you, you don't have to have the gender-affirming uh, surgery to be post-transition uh, with gender dysphoria. Does that sound right? That's correct. Okay, good. I, I was reading through that and I was kind of like, okay, have I got this or not? Um, sort of some interesting things that I noticed as I was reading about this. The telltale signs of this condition start showing up in some portion of the people who will go on to develop this um, as early as age two. Tell us kind of yes. more about that. Okay, so if you look at the DSM-5, they actually have separate criteria for children and versus adolescents and adults. And in children, the criteria are things like, as an example, a desire to wear clothing of the opposite gender, a desire for cross-gender roles during make-believe play, a preference for toys that are associated with the other gender. And what is interesting that if you is that if you look at the demographics and compare between children who present with gender dysphoria and adults who present with gender dysphoria is that if you follow these children, in most children who express gender dysphoria, by the time they hit puberty, it remits. And some proportion of those children will go have severe gender dysphoria during puberty, and those will go on probably as adolescents to require more treatment, possibly hormones, possibly surgery. But when you're observing children with gender dysphoria, the treatment guidelines are quite different because we know that in that population, many of them won't require more treatment for dysphoria once they hit puberty. Whereas with adults, I believe, uh, the majority of adults who present with gender dysphoria go on to seek further treatment. That's kind of what I understood. Yeah. I or think at least a much higher proportion than in children. So natal boys, I think that's the way the DSM-5 describes it. Uh, somewhere between about five and 14 out of 100,000 of those natal boys express these these signs of gender dysphoria as as two to four year olds, right? And only about two to three percent of those persist. Uh, girls, natal girls, a little less often, have these kinds of symptoms, two to three out of 100,000. But it, it seems like a larger percentage of, of girls who are expressing those those behaviors end up um, having persisting symptoms. So, yes. and, and I think this is why understanding, trying to find maybe biomarkers so that we can be proactively involved in providing care for people that will um, be more likely to have that kind of struggle as they hit puberty and, and on would be really helpful. And I, don't, I think that's the neuroanatomy article starts to speak to some of those biological differences. Yeah. Did the, did the research add in some of the um, those born with more ambiguous traits? Um, so how did they, or maybe they didn't, account for those with, you know, CAH or androgen insensitivity? What groups did they put that in? 
or did they address it at all? You mean as natal natal boys, natal girls, or yeah. something else? Did they did you know, they push them into one category, or did they kind of set them aside for research in some other way? So, so here's the way I think about this: whether it's right or not, I I don't have any idea, but it seems like there's a a more clear understanding that these very overtly and easily measured differences in in uh, in either the expression, the physical expression of gender, or the um, hormonal expression of gender, or reaction to that hormonal expression of gender, those are, are more easily understood. So I think they've kind of been separated out. Okay. So oh well, there's a reason for people to feel this way in this case, gotcha. and and in the other setting, it's it's it seems like it's less. It feels like we've had, the, not we, but maybe the researchers have needed to, to say, hey, wait a minute, it's not just the easily obvious people who have this biological condition that have gender dysphoria. It's much broader than that, and we just don't understand all the, all the nuances of, of, of what leads to that kind of um, uh, physical experience. It, it, in a way, this reminds me a little bit of uh, the, the, the case to be made for this condition seems to remind me a little bit of schizophrenia. I'm just curious, uh, Ray, how much experience did you have with schizophrenia before you showed up here at the state hospital? Um, a little bit. When I came out of college, I worked at a drug and detox facility, and so we'd let, get a lot of SMI patients or severely mentally ill, and mm -hmm. a lot of them had schizophren or schizophrenia. Before you met and, and knew those patients, those people, how much did you perceive that uh, people that you might have seen walking down the streets with schizophrenia got there by their own choice sort of thing. That this was a, a choice to have schizophrenia. I think a lot of it was putting the blame on them because you know how s society portrays some of these issues where you know these patients are not compliant with their medications. If you know they would just stay on the medications they would be fine, they would be healthy. But when I started that job it kind of shine the light and show me this true world of what medicine is and like it's not their fault there's a lot of other conditions that inhibit them from you know complying with medications with treatment etc cetera, etc cetera. and I think one of the things I hear often is oh they use drugs that's why it happened as opposed to man you know this this human brain that we carry around it just expresses itself in a lot of different ways and I know before I got so immersed in the treatment of schizophrenia, even as an early psychiatrist, I still had some struggles understanding the, the, the link between brain and behavior as clearly as I did once I got here. And I, at the state hospital, and I, I'm, I'm kind of under this impression that were we to uh, be as passionate as Nuria about this topic, jump into a clinic where we saw the day-to-day -day effects of people who really, really struggled with, with their physical experience in life, their emotional experience of, in life, because of the way their brain is built, their body is built, and, and we saw that there was a way to help somebody with that, I think, I, I think we would probably see it very similarly to the way we see schizophrenia. And again, it's, it's much like you're saying, you shine the light on this and, and you start changing, at least you know, as opposed to, oh no, I'm nervous about going there, you start shining light on it, you go, you know, I, I, I work with something that has many biases against it, and I'm always fighting this fight to try and make sure that people can see this the way I do. And of course, I think I'm right about the way I see schizophrenia, right? And so I, I just have to say, I'm really glad that you gave at least me and, and 
other people the opportunity to hear sort of this sort of, hey, this is a, a very biological condition. It has some very clear signs. Not everybody that has a moment of talking like with schizophrenia, right? If you have a childhood friend, imaginary childhood friend, that doesn't mean schizophrenia. It just means, hmm, we watch, right? And I think that's sort of the same with this, right? There, there are these early signs you watch and then you see where this goes, and then you try to be available and supportive. Treatment we talked about for the, the purposes of studying for your shelf and board exams, we focused on, hey, don't jump down the pathway of gender reassignment. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the appropriate or more appropriate term is gender affirming surgery at the moment. That's what I saw in the literature more than gender reassignment surgery. Um, we don't immediately jump to that, right? And in fact, one of the things I really like was there's a, a very complex and very well-defined set of criteria, they're in their seventh iteration now, about how would you go about helping somebody who has gender dysphoria, um, how would you help treat them, right? Do you want to comment on those, those guidelines? Yeah, so the World Association for Transgender Health, I hope I have that correct. Yes, I'm looking at my notes and reading it and still wondering if I have it correct. <laughs> but the World Association pr publishes standards of care, as Dr. Rennie said, in their seventh iteration. And this is a pretty comprehensive document that lays down guidelines for the treatment of patients with gender dysphoria. It gives you criteria for each step. So the way I believe it's taught for the boards is you have to, the patient should spend one year socially transitioned, meaning they dress and act as if they're the gender that they're... Um, express gender, followed by one year of hormone treatment, and at that point they become eligible for gender-affirming gender surgery. So this three-year timeline is the way it's taught for the boards. I, to quote something that I read in the standards of care, that one year is a minimum criterion, not the only criterion. So the idea, behind, I believe, behind providing timelines like one year is so that patients have time to realistically understand the results of surgery treat other psychiatric comorbidities, make life plans to help them cope with the transition they're about to experience. But that one year is not a prescription where, okay, you've done X for one year, so now we're gonna proceed to Y step. It's just a guideline to help you give patients realistic treatment and not rush anything, but also give them um, access to all the treatment that they need, if that makes sense. My feeling is that the organizations that are using that criteria are going to be the organizations that you'd want to work with um, for both the hormone, um, it's not hormone replacement therapy, that's something else, uh, for the hormonal treatment, and then eventually for gender affirming surgery, uh, because I think they following that pathway makes a lot of sense to me, the way I look at that. Um, life for our patients, I'm gonna pull up another kind of thing that buzzes connections in my brains in my brain uh, life for our patients with schizophrenia is not easy right uh, it's not easy to walk down the street talking to voices have the police pull you over half the time you're doing that have people uh, avoid you break up relationships with your family have a tough time in interpersonal relationships nobody chooses that right yet that is the brain that our patients with schizophrenia have it's a very difficult life the life for somebody that has gender dysphoria is not easy either. Did you look at some of the problems that our patients with gender dysphoria deal with, some of the challenges? Uh, I'm familiar with some of it. That There's obviously a huge social stigma until I believe very recently, 
transgender people were not protect were not a protected class and could be discriminated against basically legally. I believe this, a Supreme Court finally passed a ruling that protects them, but until recently you could be fired if you were discovered to be transgender. Just legally, you could be evicted. Um, trans women are murdered at a rate that I believe is something like double, triple the rate that cisgendered women are, are murdered at. If those trans women are black, that number goes up even further. That's an extreme example, but it is a truth that trans yeah. people face discrimination on legal, socially, legally, even in medicine, they face you know difficulties in terms of access to care. And those difficulties are um, confounded. I don't know if that's the word I mean, are made more difficult by the fact that even if they can get access to the care they need and can transition, that transitioning in itself can create problems because someone who has gender dysphoria and just hides it you know in a way they're it's invisible where they maybe aren't facing discrimination but they're suffering if they choose to address that suffering medically then they open themselves up to just a world of discrimination that they weren't visible to before so yeah you pretty well nailed all the things that i thought i read in the dsm-5 uh stigma Victimization, discrimination, lots of good data about the challenges that this uh, this brings to people. Um, I, we're we're nearing the thirty minute mark, and I know that I always shoot for about a fifteen minute podcast because I think most people listen for about twenty minutes max. So let's let's try and still top tackle two issues that I I thought were important. And there's a lot more here, obviously, right? There's a lot here that we're not getting to. The first issue that's important is that it's not clear to me, based on the data, that even though gender dysphoria is problematic, that uh, surgery, that that post, let's see, what's the 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 DSM post transition? It's not clear to me that post transition consistently creates a better life for our patients. And I think um, one of the articles that you presented, um, that you gave me, was a meta-analysis of all the studies. Very difficult information to get, right? This is really, really challenging. Uh, First of all, there's a lot of stigma in talking about this issue with people. There's a lot of uh, discrimination associated in the world, and it makes you kind of fearful of of participating in these kinds of things. But the, the data suggests that at the moment the processes that we use seem to help people when they're when they go through the gender uh, reaffirming surgery generally speaking life is better yes and that seems to be pretty consistent the article the meta-analysis one of the things i really liked about it is it said i i think what it said to me and, and maybe two of the articles that you also sent to me that talked about some specific examples it seems like the more we are able as a medical profession to follow those guidelines that are out and build on the better support processes in that transition, the more successful, the more likely it will be that um, our patients that um, have, have become post-transitional, they will, they will have a much better outcome than even now. I really liked one of the uh, one of the comments that one of the articles made, which was essentially, "Hey, listen, you know, if you had just gone with me the first time to buy women's clothing, it would have been a whole lot easier, and I would have felt a lot better after the first surgery, right?" So, 
so even really simple things, immediately after um, gender-affirming surgery or during the transition to female hormones, probably has the potential to dramatically increase or improve the outcomes that that are hinted at now, and yet not not as tangible as I think we would like to see. Tell me what your thoughts are about that, how closely I kind of saw that information to what you saw. I agree with you, what you've said about the two articles that I sent you. I will add that I read um, several articles about mental health in transgender individuals that I did not send to you because I already sent you so many articles. (laughs) And there seems to be a lot of research that suggests that patients who have comorbid psychiatric problems, anxiety, depression, PSTD, that those problems are not significantly improved just by transitioning and that it's really important for patients who are transitioning to have consistent, you know, to keep seeing your therapist, to have psychiatric treatment and to kind of manage any other comorbidities they have while they're transitioning. Because otherwise, even if you've had the transition and you've had a good result with surgery, which is really important for post-surgical satisfaction, you may still have, you know, depression and anxiety and and your quality of life may not improve because you still have these conditions that are not being managed. Or vice versa, your quality of life may improve, but your psychological functioning may not. And I think that was one of the things that was more surprising to me was there were about as many negative studies on psychological measures as there were positive studies. And yet the signal for quality of life improvement seemed pretty robust in comparison. So that's a, a really good take home point. That, that brings me to the last area. So one of my inis- initial hesitancies about tackling this topic was that we do see patients who become psychotic, um, unable to test reality, right? They're listening to voices, they're hallucinating. And during the time that they are hallucinating, they will express many different ideas about themselves, whether they're vegan, no longer vegan, whether they're um, gay, straight, and, and the rest of the list of, of um, sexual orientations. Do you want to help me? LB, LBGQ, um, T, help LGBTQ? Me. LBGTQ, LB, um, plus more. Uh, yeah, uh, I have to be honest, I don't have every acronym memorized. <laughs> I almost always just use the term queer because I think that's more inclusive and more useful. Uh. So I have to admit, when I was a kid, that was a really bad thing to say. So I've had a tough time adopting that word. Um, There's a history of that word being used by LGBT historians for themselves. I think the reclamation has been done. And I personally find, as a queer person, this is an easier word that includes everyone. Mm -hmm. But... I'll see if I can do it, but that goes against all of my, you know, like that's an, you know, that's that's a mean thing to say. So, so anyway, the point is there are all of these changes that happen during psychosis, right? And not all of those things that are expressed during a psychotic episode are durable. So um, we've had patients here who seem to um, have gender dysphoria while psychotic and then after reasonably treated with you know, minimal residual psychosis and psychosis that wasn't about gender, genitalia, those kinds of things. And we've also had patients here who have, uh, have had the opposite, 
right? The exact opposite. And so I had a, I have a great deal of concern about some interactions that I've had within the, the medical field, both in training and then later, where it seemed like those criteria that you described earlier were less important than having the surgery done. And I, I don't know why that would be the case, right? I don't know if, if um, you know, maybe the experience that the person in the clinic has was that um, psychosis seems to get better when you treat gender dysphoria. One of the case reports that was mentioned in one of the articles you gave me suggested that, that psychosis did get a little bit better, even though relatively stable, got a little bit better when gender dysphoria was treated. Um, but I, I, think, I think a really important point that one of those articles brought out was there has to be that period of stability. You don't treat somebody who is actively psychotic and is um, expressing gender dysphoria. The best data, the, the data out of the university in Amsterdam, UV, University of Amsterdam, I think was what it was called. Mm -hmm. um, yes. I really liked the way they approached this. They, they listed a, a general review of about, what, 20 case reports and said, essentially, you know what, there's a whole lot of case reports out there about gender affirming surgery going bad. And that's just not our experience. And he, in psychosis, they, they identified these specifically in psychosis. And they said, here's our experience. And they talked about four cases that they were, they, they identified five cases, I think. And one of the people said, look, I'm so happy now, I don't want to mess around with this study of yours, leave me alone. And the other four people were willing to engage. And um, the thing that I was most impressed by was the timeline, right? The, the attention to timeline, because I think timeline is very important in all of our conditions. We talk about timeline with adjustment disorders. We talk about timeline with schizophreniform versus schizophrenia versus acute, uh, acute stress disorder versus PTSD. All of these things have timelines that are very important. And the timeline, um, I've always felt like the timeline for schizoaffective disorder versus schizophrenia may be among the most challenging. Now I've changed my mind. They talked about the timeline with uh, development of, of um, gender dysphoria, looking at that, those ages of two and three up to age 13, their, their population they identified that they did the retrospective analysis on, all had early gender dysphoria, which is, I think, we talked about the distinction between late on onset and early. And what they said was they didn't treat until there was good evidence that the gender dysphoria was both be before the psychosis and persisted through the episodes. And it was very interesting because I think that's the way that we all want to go about this as psychiatrists. And one of the things I really liked was they said, hey, if you have somebody with schizophrenia, you need to have people that are experts in psychosis helping to guide that decision making. People, psychosis is unique enough that, that you don't try and just have anybody any psychologist, any psychiatrist, any specialty clinic necessarily tackle that independently. You want somebody that's truly an expert in psychosis to be able to say the timelines work. And I really like that. In fact, they said that those doctors are most important. Not, not you know, tooting our own horn or anything, but that was, I think, the line they had in that article, and I really like that. Yeah, when I first brought up the idea of this topic with Dr. Roundy, he told me about his experiences that he'd had, and I had never thought about how psychosis might affect gender dysphoria. So that was the first thing I looked up. And it seemed to me in those articles that one of the things that was really key was the timeline, but also just 
kind of testing the patient's experience of dysphoria and seeing if it was delusional, hmm? if that makes sense. Like, if it um, was realistic, were patients, like, was the patient's um, ideas about their body realistic? Did they, um, were their expectations of any surgery they were going to have realistic? I believe there was one patient who believed that, like, surgery would allow her to ejaculate. Um, for example, and so those seem to me like kind of clues that, hey, maybe this person's gender dysphoria is more related to their psychosis than not related, and you need to treat it from that perspective until you confirm otherwise. Because reversing gender-affirming surgery is quite difficult. Is it more difficult than the original gender-affirming uh, surgery? I believe so, yeah. From what case reports I read of people who had detransitioned, um, not every treatment, so the, let me back up a little bit. The standards of care kind of list three stages of care. Fully reversible, which is puberty blockers and social transitioning. Partially reversible, which is hormones. And irreversible, which is surgeries. And so there are things they can try to undo what's been done. But if you've had like a hysterectomy, right? They can't put a uterus and ovaries back in you. That's a permanent surgery. If you've had orchidectomy, that's permanent. They can't restore that. Um, if you've had hormone treatment and it changed your voice, that is not that's not reversible. So it's important when we embark, as you said, on um, those treatments with patients that we're sure that the patient's understanding is realistic and that they're really competent to make that decision. Yeah. You know, I, I, I really like those additions. Those are, you know, I, I think of, some of those aspects of, of the reassignment surgery, I'm sorry, the affirming, the gender affirming surgery, um, but not all of those, that's, a, that's just a great review. Um, I think that probably tackles this topic well enough. We're in uh, almost 40 minutes. This ends up being one of the longer, not only uh, podcasts, but I think we spent about an hour talking about this before, um, trying to wrap our heads around kind of, how do you tackle a tough topic in a in a helpful and meaningful way? And I gotta say, I really like the way this uh, came out. Thank you very, very much to all three of you. Um, last thoughts, Ray. Uh, just like I, what I said before, focus on therapy if there is some distress in the person uh, before initially going to s surgery, because we wouldn't really do that with any other patient, go straight to surgery, right? Try to do some labs and other um, testing first. And uh, just to follow that, the timelines can come up in some of the board prep material. So I think that's important for the patient as well as that could be important for your question. Across the, across the board, timelines seem to be important for <laughs> the shelf exams. Yeah. Nuria, final thoughts? Um, as Ray said before, on your board, this is probably going to be an easy question, but or at least it's probably going to be a question that's not incredibly difficult because there aren't a lot of things that are like gender dysphoria in the DSM. But that said, I feel like in your rotations and as an actual practicing physician, it will probably be more complicated. So I think it's worth doing some research and trying to educate yourself if just so you're prepared if you run into it in the field. I, I want to have... I very, very much appreciate those thoughts. I want to add one last thing based on what you're saying, Nuria. We were talking about, um, before the podcast, about referral to specialty clinics. 
and about uh, how it's such a, a challenging topic. It's outside of our scope of understanding. It's not something we've read about, uh, understand about. So it makes sense to refer to a different clinic, right? And and you kind of gave, I, I kind of said, I, I, I kind of get that. And you know, you, you kind of gave me that look that always makes me go, oh, I've missed something here. Let me think through this. And uh, I started thinking about it and I thought, uh, well, if, if somebody was Native American showed up to your clinic, Jamin, and, and you said, listen, Native American health is just too specialized for me. Here's your referral. Don't come back. What is that? Sounds a little offensive. <laughs> and if somebody came to your clinic that said, uh, Ray, hey, listen, I uh, have schizophrenia and it's pretty well managed right now, but you know my antipsychotic medications cause a lot of metabolic issues and I really want a primary care provider. And you said hey, sorry, that's just not my cup of tea. You know, here, here's, uh, here's the way out and here's the referral. I mean, those, those sound egregious, right? But and, could we play devil's advocate where they're trying to get you the best hope? So, yeah, so, so that's a great question, Ray. And I think the, the answer is you do want to provide the best care for the person, but that doesn't mean that you stop being the primary care provider for everything else, right? And it doesn't mean that you stop reading and learning how mm. to provide that care. So if you if you don't have access to referral clinics, so let's suppose that in uh, <coughs> in Cedar City, the closest place for you to get gender affirming surgery would be Las Vegas or uh, Salt Lake. That's a three hour drive. So if you want to have primary care, do you have to pack up and drive three hours each direction every time to get mm. primary care? Or do you want to be able to have a primary care physician that can collaborate with the experts? So there, I think there are parts that the experts would pick up and parts that would be necessary for, um, for the, the primary care provider to pick up. And, and my thinking about that is most psychiatrists are not going to provide statins for people that have elevated cholesterol because they're on anti, uh, antipsychotic medications. What I don't know is the role of um, the the gender dysphoria, uh, the clinics that are associated with gender-affirming surgeries and gender-affirming treatments, I don't know what level of primary care they pick up and I don't know what access everybody has to continued primary care there. So so very much like maybe there's a specialty clinic for schizophrenia in the city you're in, they have a primary care provider that sits on location. That may well be the best provider available. But that's not necessarily, you know, the end of your care, just sending them to that clinic. You have to find that out, I think. So great question. Absolutely, if there is better care and it includes better care than what you're able to provide because of the number of people that they're seeing, absolutely a referral, I think. But that doesn't mean that you might not be involved in that person's care after and, and it's not valuable to pick up that care, in my opinion. Yeah, just to finish it off, like, your transgendered patients probably still will need preventative screenings, for example, treatment for things like high blood pressure and diabetes, all the things that your primary care doctor would do. And some of those things might be affected by their hormone treatment or their surgery, and they might not be. But I think it's worth your while if you're going to providing like primary care to think, okay, even if I'm not the one providing this patient with their transitional care, they still might need me to think a little bit more about their everyday needs. And that's the part I don't know, and I, I, I agree with you completely. If there is a better clinic, I treat schizophrenia. I don't try and treat depression, yeah. right? I don't, I don't, I, I may treat it here occasionally. Uh, if it gets very complicated, I'm immediately calling somebody that spends every day treating depression. I think there's some data along those lines with uh, 
Is it the cardiovascular surgeries? The, the centers that do high numbers of cardiovascular surgeries have better outcomes because the practice, I think there's the same kind of data probably with stroke outcomes. Centers that do a lot of stroke treatment are probably better at getting, uh, getting the, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not TPA, what is it? Uh, the clot busters. Thrombolytics? The thrombolytics, thank you. The thrombolytics uh, into somebody within the window, right? What you do over and over and over, you're better at. If you don't do it over and over and over and somebody does it over and over and over and is better than you, and it's a very specialized area, I think I can agree with you. Um, on the other hand, I, I think that's probably not always the case. So I'll, I'll stake out a middle ground firmly now, <laughs> after having been both sides of this uh, at one time or the other. Guys, what a great discussion. Thank you so much. I appreciate all of you being here very, very much. Great topic, Nuria. Um, I, I know each one of these I leave learning a great deal, and this is certainly no exception. Uh, on that note, team out. Team out. Team out.